Welcome back to another episode of the Individuation Podcast. My name is James Malamus. We've got a great episode for you. Today, we welcome back Eric Tomlinson, this time to discuss Jung's Map of the Soul, Chapter 9. In this episode, we will go over, in our time and eternity, our transcendence connection. Next week, we will go into Chapter 10. It's a great discussion, and we can't wait for you to hear it. If you enjoy the Individuation Podcast and want to support Make sure to rate the podcast five stars on iTunes and wherever you get your podcast. So without any further ado, Dr. Al Samurai, take it away. Welcome to another episode of the IFC's Individuation Podcast. I am Dr. Lahab Al Samurai. Here with me is Dr. Eric Tomlinson. We are here for the next chapter of Dr. Stein's um, journey, map of the soul, Young's map of the soul. And we will be doing chapter nine. And chapter nine is fascinating because chapter nine brings in how the archetypal structures connect to us on, um, on an earthly plane through synchronicity. And we're going to get into that topic and many more. Um, just like to let everybody know that we are also, if you want to see the YouTube video of the podcast, you are welcome to go to the Institute for Conflict YouTube channel and you will see us there. So, Eric, how are you doing today? Doing good, sir. It's good to see you. It's good to be here. Good to see you. So let's, uh, let's start taking... Uh, an ax to this um, very rich, dense, um, kind of like if this chapter felt like he infused, where in other chapters he diluted three, four volumes in 20 pages. In this chapter, it feels like he diffused um, and like put things on top of each other. I don't know what your sense was, but it just felt like really dense to me. Like when I would go through a, like a part of it, it's like it felt like there's way very different from the previous chapters where he just like made it very easy to grasp. And yeah, easy and clear. Easy and clear. Not to say he's not clear. He is clear. This is dense material. Um, so I want to start of time and eternity, synchronicity. He says on page 199, Young was fascinated by what happens on the borders. This was his temperament. He loved to push at the edges of the already known. His first major study was a dissertation on mediumistic trances and the wondrous account of long dead personages of his young cousin, Helen Prisker. This was a psychological investigation of her relation between normal and paranormal states of consciousness. Subsequent works on word association and theory of complexes studies the boundaries between conscious and unconscious, 
parts of the psyche pressing further into the territory of the unconscious. Jung found another borderline. This one lay between the personal and impersonal contents of the unconscious, between the territory of the complexes, that of the archetypal image and instincts combination. In, in consequent investigations of the self, he found a point of transgression at the boundary between the psyche and non-psyche. Since the archetype per se is psychoid and does not strictly belong within the confines of the psyche boundaries. It bridges between inner and outer worlds and breaks down the subject-object dichotomy. So let's start there, which is a lot, which is a mouthful. <clears throat> so I think he was saying that Young was not satisfied. Whatever he discovered, he wanted to discover more. He felt there, were, there was more behind what he was looking at. So when he was able to see something, he wanted to go further and see, okay, what, what is behind this thing that I see? Stein says, ultimately, this curi curiosity about boundaries led Young to state a theory that attempts to articulate a single unified system which embraces both matter and spirit and throws a bridge between time and eternity. This is the theory of synchronicity, an extension of the theory of self into cosmology. Synchronicity speaks of the profound hidden order and unity among all that exists. This theory also unveils Jung, the metaphysician, an identity he often denied. So this theory is the Undus Mundus, which is we're having a conference on the Undus Mundus. And one of the issues that we will be diving into is synchronicity at this conference. Um, it is the one world theory. This theory that integrates the, the organic with the inorganic as a continuum, the cosmos as a continuum that extends through us, uh, by us, and um, as us. It is us where we stand. It is outside of us where we don't. It is always there. We're always interconnected. Eric. Yeah, Stein, uh, I, I, yeah, it's just, it, it, you're right. This is a really deep subject. I mean, it's, uh, some people could call it mystical. Some people call it, could call it religious. Obviously, people can call it spiritual. Um, esoteric. Pardon? Esoteric. Yeah, esoteric of the essences of life. I mean, it can be metaphysical. A lot of ways to look at it. But what I what I, he said late he said somewhere around the Undis Mundus statement he said. One of his wildest notions was the unity of the self and being, and these, which encapsulates or pulls together the two things that you just said a few minutes ago, which is the, you know, the spiritual and the material world. And it really got me thinking about, of course, religion, because where do you see information on this? 
as much as you do in religious writings and philosophical writings, but really religious writings put the most meaning onto it. And what I like about him doing that is he shows, because in my experience, some religions, I'll just use one as an example, Christianity, for example, tends to keep those highly separated. You're either of the spirit or you're not of the spirit. You're either being controlled by your spiritual side or you're not. And, and he... And one is good and one is bad. Yes. Oh, absolutely. They're opposites. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, They're it's, not compensatory. No. Which in Jungian psychology and analytical psychology, they're compensatory. And that's the, thank you. You just summed up the point I was going toward. That's it. He, shows, it. he really shows how they both have a role. We are, because we are, because the big religion question is, are we spiritual and we just live in a material body and that's the battle we fight? Or are we material and live in a spiritual or are we a material body that lives spiritually? And Jung basically says we're both. Yes. You can't you can't reject one over the other while we're in this body. You have to acknowledge both, and I really really like that. So it it, it is it is in a way as Stein will later indicate that Jung was headed towards a more of a uh, physics type of explanation for um, the inorganic and how it's connected to the organic. Yes. So what Jung believed was there was a pattern in the chaos. So in the chaotic world that we think we live in, there's actually a very, um, understandable pattern. And in that pattern, Young's few writings about signoricity explored the meaningful order of seemingly random events. This is on page 200 of this book. He notes as many others have too, that psychic images, objective events are sometimes arranged in defined patterns. And this arrangement occurs by chance, not by virtue of a casual chain of preceding events. In other words, I think that word was causal. Causal, sorry. Yeah. Um, occurs by chance, not by virtue of a causal chain. Yeah. I said casual. Okay. Yes, sir. Causal chain. Thank you. Of preceding events. In other words, there is no causal reason for the pattern to appear. It comes about purely by chance. So the question arises, is this chance event of patterning completely random or is it meaningful? Divination follows that, the idea that certain chances, events have meaning. A certain bird flies overhead, a soothsayer tells the king that the time is right to set out for battle. Or there is a more complicated case of the ancient Chinese oracle called the I Ching, the book of changes. So this book is consulted by throwing coins or yarrow sticks to determine a pattern of numbers that is then related to one of 64 hexagrams. Uh, by studying this, the assumption is that there's a meaningful order behind the chance outcome of the coin tossing. 
a burning question in events in the external world. People who try the I Ching are often surprised by its uncanny accuracy. Okay. I'm not going to go into the I Ching too much because we kind of get sidetracked. But uh, in short, the I Ching shows how synchronicity works in um, Young's idea. He notes with fascination, namely, that psychological compensation occurs not only in dreams, but also in the non-psychological controlled events. Sometimes compensation arises from the outside world. A patient of Young had a dream of a golden scarab beetle while discussing the dream and a symbol in his study. They heard a sound at the window and found that a local Swiss version of the beetle was trying to get into the room. From this instance like this, one infers that the appearance of the archetypal image in dreams may coincide with other events. So um, the compensatory phenomena crosses over commonly accepted boundaries between subject and object and manifests itself in the object world. I'm gonna give an example of this because it happened today when I um, saw my clients and I will talk about how this works. So my client uh, sent me her dream. Before I go into the dream, I just like to talk about why I think it's synchronicity because I've been watching ancient aliens for like, I've been on a kick before I go to sleep. So sometimes I laugh at it. Sometimes I'm like, oh, that's questionable. Sometimes I'm like, wow, that could be true. And sometimes I think, oh, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Come on. What show so, is it, Lahab? It's called Ancient Aliens. Oh, okay. So in the show, they talk about how civilizations arose and how ancient alien astronauts were the ones who basically were the primary culprits of these things. Anyway, um, to, uh, to talk about Young's point of signoricity. So my client has a dream. This is her dream. I'm in a group of men who are under siege. The attackers are closing in. We are a close-knit unit and we trust one another implicitly. Our leaders decide that in order for some of us to survive in some way, he is sending two of us away in a spacecraft to another planet. So I laughed today. So I was, I was interpreting the dream and I started laughing. I was like, why are we sending other people to different planets? Because I've been making jokes as I walk around the house talking about how I would like to send different people to different planets. So this shows up. To survive the trip, I'm trying to read this and stay objective as the interpreter, as the objective listener, but I, I'm getting pulled in because it's signoricity. This is the stuff that I've been laughing and kind of talking about. To survive the trip, we must be transformed. We are to be turned into small pieces of machinery, a robot. So yesterday I was, I was checking out the Mayan civilization and how um, the Mayan ruler and one of the etchings, it, they basically show him as like in a spaceship 
moving levers and like flying away. We are coming under heavy fire with parts of our compound being blown up. Part of it was that the Spanish uh, were getting close to the Mayans and the Mayans disappeared. They weren't killed or they kind of disappeared according to ancient theory. So with each strike, some men are killed. None seem to be only injured, just deaths and our numbers are dwindling. Myself and another are transformed into small pieces of machinery. We are compact, maybe a foot tall, and no way appear humanoid. The man who is piloting the escape vehicles understood to not survive the trip. He is encouraging us to hurry. I feel somewhat distressed about deserting my unit and also understand that if there is any possible way to help them, it is completely accept the transformation, allow my new form to be installed on the escape craft. Last night, as I was falling asleep, they were talking about the Mayan ruler getting into the space escape craft <laughs> and launching into space. And I fell asleep and I woke up and I was reading this and I was like, somebody's messing with me, right? This is what Jung talked about as signaristic. This is what he meant that there is a connection. There's an archetypal connection. And in this connection, we start to say, oh, you know, how do they know? It must have been a coincidence. He does not think signaristic is a coincidence because of the undus mundus which is that there is one, that we are a totality, that there is a unification in the cosmos and we all fit in that puzzle. We're all pieces of a larger puzzle. And when they put us all in together, then we make one version of the cosmos and that puzzle. So, yes. Uh, it, it fits right into one of the statements you, re you wrote, uh, read earlier. I'd also had it written down about the psychic images and objective events. So not only the stuff that goes on in our psyche, but just plain objective events are, are typically arranged in patterns. And those who have studied the brain knows that our brain is hardwired for pattern recognition and for categories. Mm. We're hardwired for it. Mm. Not, and it's not just to see the patterns and categories within human interaction, it's to see it in all of life, which is why we're the one species that can see design and purpose and meaning in the universe. And that's where he starts talking about math. Yes. And start, he starts talking about numbers. And he, he, he basically says, this is a singularistic event. How do we know about numbers? Where did they come from? They come from pattern recognition. And That's pattern recognition is all about mathematics. Exactly. And pattern recognition is about numbers. It's about understanding your ABCs, understanding the one, two, threes, understanding A plus B equals C squared. So, and that's, uh, 
Dr. Stein, one of his new um, theories of the psyche. And, and Dr. Lahab, and because of, because of what you're talking about and what Stein was talking about, you also mentioned psychological compensation also occurs in non-psychologically controlled events. Correct. That's why, that's why compensation can occur because we're, our brain can recognize the patterns and categories in events that are not psychologically related. Yes. And we're in people when they think of synchronicity, they often, oftentimes, most people in general think of synchronicity in terms of events that we've all heard about. A daughter calls her mother that lives across the country and says, Mom, don't get on that plane tomorrow. I, I had a dream and, and, and it, it's going to crash. Mm. And then the plane crashes. Mm. Or, or, yeah. or somebody dies, two twins live in different countries mm. and one of them woke up in a panic and called to find out that one of their siblings or parents had died. Yeah. I mean, yes, we can kind of accept that as it relates to pre human interaction, but we have a hard time accepting it when it comes to everyday events. Yeah, or non-organic things. Yeah, but everyday uh, events, this is a, an event between me and my clients. We have a conversation on Wednesdays, but the closer we seem to talk to each other, the more archetypal images are throwing themselves across both of our laps one in the psyche of my client, the other in front of me as I watch TV, I am being told a story that I am listening to. So in both, I, um, I'd like to give a, an example. My uh, uncle Wathop uh, had a dream. He was in London. He had left uh, Baghdad uh, when he was a kid, 17, 18, had gone to Manchester to study and get his degree, was working in Abu Dhabi at the time. But anyway, he was in London, he was having this nightmare and it kept waking him up that he landed in Baghdad and in Baghdad, the um, internal security forces uh, got onto the plane and carted him off the plane in shackles. And he woke up, he was sweating and um, kind of because he was taking a flight back home to the Emirates and he's like, well, no, this is just because it's an anxiety dream because I'm flying. So he had left Baghdad and he was, uh, he was speaking against the government. So he was not, uh, uh, he was not too excited about uh, like landing in Baghdad anytime soon. So anyway, he says, I go to the airport and I ask, I say, um, does this plane stop anywhere? Does it have a layover or stopover? They go, no, 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 absolutely not. Um, he said, are you sure? So he's asking the ticket person, are you sure? She goes, well, let me take a look. Oh, there's a refueling stop, but it's only 30 minutes in Baghdad. He said, thank you. I'll take another flight. Mm. This flight. So, so he said, he said, I had this permanent, it was like, he said, it was like a premonition. He kept waking up. He said, in a cold sweat, I'm thinking about this. It can't be. He says, it's like, I look at the ticket. The ticket looks fine. It goes from A to B. There is no 
So because it was a refueling stop and because it was so short, they did not have it on the ticket because it was not uh, a place where you take on passengers and let off passengers. So it's considered part, in, in the old days, it's considered part of the flight. There is no stopover. Um, but Young would say this is a signaristic event. He would say that the dream of the stopover was the signaristic event. Um, in a way, it's an ESP or a pre-mission event, but it's also a synchronistic event. Um, he says, from instances like this, one infers that the appearance of the archetypal images and dreams may coincide with other events. The compensatory phenomena crosses over the commonly accepted boundaries between subject and object. Uh, what we, uh, me and Dr. Uh, Tomlis are talking about matter and non-matter. So you have from the material world to the non-material world. Between subject and object manifesting in the object world. Again, the puzzle for Jung was how to account for this in his theory. Strictly speaking, such events are not psychological. So that's another twist in this story of ours. Signoricity is not a psychological event. Signoricity is a... Uh, is an archetypal event. It's not, it's, yeah, it's not causal. No, it it's was. an archetypal event. Strictly speaking, such events are not psychological. They have deep connection to psychological life, but he says archetypes, he concludes, are transgressive. That is, they are not limited to the psychic realm. In their transgressivity, they can emerge into consciousness either from within the psychic matrix or from the world about us or both at once. When both happen at the same time, it is called synchronistic. When the event, I have a dream as uh, Uncle Wathok has a dream about being carted off and landing in Baghdad, to walking into the airport and asking about where does the plane stop at? And it happens to stop in Baghdad. So <clears throat> he says in their transgressivity, they can emerge into consciousness either from within the psychic matrix or from the world about us or both at once. When both happen at the same time, it is called synchronistic. So when Eric called me after a long period of time and I responded to him thinking, what happened to him? I've been thinking about him. That is what we talk about as a synchronistic event. That is that it's an archetypal event. So the references to the Undus Mundus, the unified cosmos. This is, by the way, um, 
we will have a conference in October and bring in speakers from all over the world to discuss the one, the unified cosmos, the one world theory, that we're all one with the cosmos. And the notion, if not in the exact terms of synchronicity, are scattered through the collective works and other less formal writings like letters. But Jung did not express his thoughts fully on this subject until fairly late in life. And I'll tell you the reason. Because Jung wanted to be taken seriously as a scientist and as a clinician, did not want to be dismissed as um, a magician or somebody who like makes up stuff just for them. In 1952, he and Nobel Prize winner physicist Wolfgang Pauli jointly published uh, Nutra Koreng Quarand Psyche, translated into English, the interpretation of nature and psyche, which was an attempt to elucidate the possible relations between nature and psyche. It was significant that Jung published this work with a Nobel Prize winning scientist and not with a philosopher, a theologian, or a mythologist. He made a point about publishing this work on singularity with a physicist who was also a Nobel Prize winner to show that it exists in the world and also to be taken seriously. Plus, of all young theoretical, this piece on singularity is subject to the most gross uh, distortion. Young wanted to avoid being seen as a mystic or a crank. And it's clear that he worried especially about exposing this part of his thinking to the eyes of the scientific modern public. Pauli's essay, the influence of archetypal ideas on the expression of scientific theories of Kepler investigates the archetypal patterns in Kepler's scientific thought and sense prepares the way of Jung's more adventuresome contributions, the essay on synchronicity and a causal, uh, a, a causal connecting principle. This work on synchronicity adds to Jung's psychological theory and the notions of a high degree of continuity, continuity exists between psyche and the world. So. Dr. Lahab. Yes. Really glad you brought that point up because kind of once again, tailing off of something we said a few minutes ago, it's real easy, this subject of synchronicity, it, it's real easy if you take it to any level of depth uh, it's real easy to not only lose people in its understanding if they don't really study it or have a back or even have a little bit of a background to study it. It it can sound mystical. It can sound. It's the same way that America first started reacting uh, to paranormal psychologists. Ooh. Oh yeah, paranormal psychologists. They're all they're all in California, and you know they're all tripping on acid and coming up with all this kind of stuff. And, but then once the paranormal psychology world started getting science behind it uh, and physics behind it and mathematics behind it, it started awakening people's eyes to what we're talking about here, which is patterns of energy that aren't just, that don't just, aren't just interspersed in between people but they're interspersed between the between us as people 
and objects and experiences in the world around us. And so these patterns connect all of us. Yes. So within these patterns, they connect to each other and they connect to all of us. And that's how we experience what we experience that other people experience. So he says exactly what you're saying. He goes on to say, um, on synchronicity, he quotes Professor Einstein. He says, Professor Einstein, this is young, was my guest on several occasions at dinner. These were very early days when Einstein was developing. This is Carl Selig, but this is Young's writing on this issue. When Einstein was developing his first theory of relativity, he tried to instill in us, into us the elements of it more or less successfully. As non-mathematicians, we psychiatrists had difficulty in following his argument. <laughs> Even so, I understood enough from a powerful impression of him. It was above all the simplicity and directness of his genius mm. as a thinker that impressed me mightily and extended a lasting influence on my own intellectual work. It was Einstein who first started me on thinking about possible relativity of time as well as space. So the relativity of time and space and their psychic conditionality. More than 30 years later, this stimulus led me to relations with physicist Professor Pauli and to my thesis of psychic synchronicity. So, Young didn't uh, try to jump into the ideas of how the archetypal images connect to us and <clears throat> are relate to us. And with signoricity, he waited a long time to have a physicist next to his side before he started talking about it. He says, and this is... Um, He says, uh, it must be recognized, this is time, that the theory of archetypes and the self and the theory of synchronicity were combined to weave a single pattern of thought, a single fabric of thought, but it's a single pattern of thought. Mm -hmm. This is young unified vision referred to in the introduction of this book. To grasp the full scope of the theory of the self, one must consider it within the context of Jung's thinking on singularity. To grasp his theory of singularity, one must also know about his theory of archetypes. This is the one reason why few other psychologists have followed Jung's lead into the theory of archetypes. It becomes metapsychological to the point of metaphysics and few psychologists feel comfortable in all areas required to embrace this full theory, psychology, physics, and metaphysics. It is an intellectual range that few modern thinkers can hope to match. Academics are especially shy of stepping beyond the confines of their department's specialty. The theory of synchronicity lends to Jung's view of the self as a feature of radical transcendence over consciousness and the psyche as a whole and it challenges the common 
boundary lines drawn to separate the faculties of psychology, physics, biology, philosophy, and spirituality. Psychology is traditionally supposed to limit itself to what goes on in the human mind. But with this theory of the self and synchronicity, Jung's analytical psychology challenged this arbitrary segmentation. So to leap in that arena, you have to have cojones. It's a dangerous one to leap into. It, it is because you could get chopped up by any side. The physicist will chop you up for fun. The psychologist will chop you up for fun. The cosmologist will poke holes at you for fun. The theologians will put you down onto the ground for fun. They will all go after you because the underlying aspect of it is hard for people to come to the conclusion. And this is where Jung gets too ethereal for people. Yes. But what he is talking about is what we watch in movies all the time. I mean, me and you talk about it all yeah. the time. Yeah, we do. We talk about Star Trek. We, you talk about Captain Kirk and how he faces the other Kirk and how he has to like shut him down. Then he has to go to Spock and he almost gets killed by Spock and he has to explain it to Spock. Um, we talk about the Matrix. We talk about Star Wars where Luke is walking. We talk about these, well, where do these come from? These are archetypal patterns and images. When they say, oh, that's no moon, that's a space station. I mean, this is what, you know, look, this is a part of humanity, humanity's projections that the moon is a space station. That's not really a moon. That the moon is hollow. If we talked about scientific understanding of energy that we have today our understanding right. of energy. if we talked about the main highlights of that understanding a hundred years ago 200 years ago 300 years ago we'd have been put in prison well correct because you be we would be talking about the spirit world and the spirit world would either land us into jails uh, as you said, prisons or in mental hospitals, because or, or 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 people who take religion seriously in the way that they do, they cannot comprehend that its energy yeah. um, would end up being uh, very malignant towards us. Or very anyway, um, it's fascinating. Young actually pushed the boundaries of the way we think about things by putting up these ideas. By throwing out these ideas, he challenged the way we think about um, our individuality, our um, connection to the cosmos. He basically said we are not separate from, like everything within us is not separate from each other. We're not separate from the outside. 
And Dr. Lahab, as that relates to synchronicity, yes. something somewhere in the book, he, he really wanted to make the point that it was not causative, that it was, and if, you, if we think about what we've been talking about, that this energy, both psychic energy and non-psychological energy, both have patterns that interrelate. He said, what happens, and I, li I really like this, if we understand that, that these patterns are everywhere in the universe, it, but let's just talk about Earth. If these patterns are all over the planet, he said it's like a falling together in time and he said, it's kind of a simultaneity. They're happening simultaneously, but they're just happening to be falling together because they interact, they intermesh, they come together at that particular moment. And if we really want to get freaky about it, it's what you were talking about a few minutes ago, and that's about space and time, Ooh. is that sometimes this falling together of energy brings in elements of things that just happened before and things that are going to happen right in, right, right in the near future. Ooh, because the patterns exist beyond space and time. Yes. That's the thing that people miss. That's the people, um, I think, in, in the theorists um, miss is that, um, is the patterns. The patterns are the ones that connect everything together and they work beyond space and time. They're yeah. always there. They're always connected. They're always there. And they always show themselves. And they show themselves uh, in our universe, in our world, in like a thousand ways every single day. Every single day they show us. This, I think we talked about uh, the unknown soldier over and over again because it's fascinating. I think we should have a pod just to talk about the archetype of the unknown soldier and how, because I think that's fascinating. Wow. But it's powerful and it exists. It exists in the material world. It's shown over and over again from society to society. They honor the warrior. They honor the warrior with a continuous flame. They honor the energy. Um, we even put money and resources and it costs a lot of money to, to keep that honoring going of course and and you, you, have, you have a standing guard that's 24 hours a day yeah. every day of the week every, every week of the month every month of the year over and over and over again of course and it's not done just because somebody wanted to do a tribute it's done because there are meanings all kinds of a variety of meanings that people instinctively feel about it this is archetypal patterns yes. that transcends personal whether i feel like i am a pacifist or i'm a warmonger it doesn't matter this transcends that yes, this is a this is a pattern of our existence so the patterns the patterns are what the patterns are archetypes. And because they're archetypes, Jung says, Jung also believed that the major psychological task in the second half of life is to formulate a Weltanschauung or worldview, 
a personal philosophy of life. And this should include both rational and irrational elements. On this essay in Signoricity, we can see Young uses his rational Western scientific ego to explore the world of magic and the rare inexplicable phenomena that occurs in the collective unconscious. He's trying to formulate a symbol in the form of a concept that can hold two realms together in a tension of opposites. Well, the issue he's dealing with here are similar to those often taken up in religion philosophy. Jung is trying to bring in his scientific rational mind and worldview to bear upon a phenomena whose mystical, religious, and quasi-magical nature usually excludes them from scientific discussion for his own personal reasons, but also for our scientific culture as a whole. He's trying to forge a link between the two dominant cultural foci of the West, science and religion. He's trying to hold this tension without one sidedly favoring either element. His theory of synchronicity is a symbol that will attempt to contain the pair of opposites. This is the personal piece of this work. So what Stein is saying is that Jung's ability to bring, bring the, the patterns, the patterns of opposites together and look at them as one is um, his spark of genius really is he realized dr lahab that they were they were not only yes there's a there are aspects that look oppositional in nature but once you see behind that opposition oppositional dynamic he he said what did he say he said that they are it's either him or stein that said this he said they are uh parallel realities Correct. That are related. They're parallel realities. They're, it's not because they're they're one's matter and one's antimatter and they destroy each other. They're parallel realities that are related and interrelated. Um, and at times even coordinated. Yes. Well, this is this is the this is where people this is where people get lost it's the coordination yes so when i read from my um, client's dream and what i saw it felt so coordinated that i giggled and I giggled a lot. I was trying to control myself, but I kept giggling. And then I explained it to the client why I was giggling while I was reading the dream. Because it related to something that I witnessed she had a dream about. And it was like, um, my, my joke with her is, the archetypes like to mess with me. They know what I'm doing and they like to mess with me. The other dream that I would like to um, talk about is my other client. Uh, he had a dream and in his dream, 
the archetype um, does something different. I would like to say this. He says in the dream, this is the dream. Um, well, this is part of the dream. I'll read. The vehicle, uh, he says, first their outside rear wheels pops over the curb and the outside front wheel, then their vehicles comes uh, carrying, uh, carrying over the edge and drops about 20 feet onto the freeway. About 30 yards in front of me, the vehicle is a small SUV similar to a Suzuki Samurai. It rolls across three lanes and onto side of freeway ahead of me and off to my right. I pull off the road by the smashed vehicle to see if I can help. The car is totaled, but the young man driving it gets out and seems to be fine physically. So I say, what is your association with the Suzuki Samurai? He says, oh, it's a terrible SUV. It has a propensity to flip over. It's just a terrible car. It's just terribly constructed. I said, that was very funny, right? And this is what the archetype is saying. By the way, Mr. Samurai, <laughs> this theory of you, a theory of yours is purely constructed like the Suzuki. I was like, you know, it's very interesting how the archetype likes to insult. <laughs> so in the dream, um, the archetypal images that are arising are coordinated to a connection to that which of, uh, of what I do in the work, which is we have a new theory called JAMP, Young Advanced Motor Processing. And like the Suzuki, it's kind of finding its wheels. And sometimes it rolls over the edge and kind of flies off and then comes back and it sits there and it's ready to go again. It's not always predictable. So in a way, it's, it's both an insult and it's also a uh, compliment. Because at the beginning of the dream, he says, I am at a family gathering a few weeks before Christmas. There's talk of presents and who wants what. And I'm not really interested and don't pay much attention. My niece, Lisa, of course, we have a Lisa who comes up, wants to buy a gift certificate from Peach Tree Records. Peach Tree Records. He says, which is funny, is like, I've never heard, and like, I knew of something called Tree Records or Peach Records, but Peach Tree. She knows that the work there and asks if I will get it for her if she gives me money. I tell her that I will. I check the time and decide that even though it's a little early, I will leave for work to give myself plenty of time. He works at a place called Peach Tree Records. It's like if the archetype wants to mess with you and draw a pattern, you have a tree. And on each branch, there are records. Mm. If you think about the records, the records are, you have a family tree, you have a certain branch, it has records. On this branch, there are records. So what we've been doing in the work is integrating, right? 
So now he's able to see the tree. But as he integrates more, the archetype is not a happy camper. Because this is, this is saying, it's like, oh, are you where you're supposed to be? It says, I'm driving on a freeway with a curving on ramp or off ramp above me to my left. I can see someone taking the long sharp corner of my ramp very fast. So jam goes very fast. We go across the ramp very, very fast. There's a reason for that. Their vehicle is getting closer to the edge. I slow down so that if they go over the edge and fall onto the freeway, just in case they fuck up, I am on the, I, I'm on the, they won't hit me or I them. First, their outside reel pops up over the curb. So they're watching a train wreck. I like to say, I'd like to watch the train wreck until the end. He says, edge on the falling freeway, I am on the one that won't hit me or them. First, their outside rear walls pop over the curb, then outside front wheel, then their vehicle comes screening over the edge and drops about 20 feet onto the freeway, about 30 yards in front of me. The vehicle is a small, similar to a Suzuki Samurai. It rolls across three lanes onto the side of freeway ahead, not knowing what it's doing. It crash and burns and rolls across the highway. But as it comes to an end, the kid in it walks out, he's fine. And he says, the car is total. The young man driving it gets out and seems to be fine physically. He says, he guesses he took the corner too fast. I agree with him. He took the corner too fast. So one of the things that, um, so the private jokes of we tell everybody, one of the things that we do in Jungian Advanced Motor Processing is to move the energy as quickly as possible from the complex. So when we're moving it from the complex, you have to move it as fast as possible. Because if you don't, the complex will basically rechannel it, reconfigure it, and roll it and go through it, and then say, "Okay, I'm done." What do you want to do now? And at times, it can recreate itself and take you over. It was exactly. I it mean, it was... you right in. So even, even trained, therapeutic, experienced people. It can suck them right into it because the complex is uh is archetypal and that's where that energy from that person's mind to this person's mind is interrelated it's connected it the patterns are there through the patterns yes through the patterns if we are both staring at the pattern you say, oh, look, it's, it starts at the bottom. And I'm looking at it, and we have this conversation all the time. You say, look, it starts from the bottom. And I say, oh, no, no, look, it starts from the top. It actually starts from both. It's actually working from both sides. It starts from the bottom. It starts from the top because it's a continuous pattern. And the pattern exists in a loop. 
And I, I think just me personal, this is my personal yeah. opinion. I could be totally wrong, but I think it, it works both ways because people have two basic ways of processing information from top down or from bottom up. Now, everybody does both, but almost everybody has a preferred method of doing it. So, of course, it's going to come at you from both ways. And if we if we think about the the snake that eats its tail the beginning is the end and the end is always the beginning you are basically connected to the beginning you are the beginning you are the end so that dimension that circular dimension that uh that pattern, that pattern is energetic in the world and it reflects other patterns in the world. And in a lot of ways, that's what synchronicity is, is the recognition of patterns. So how do I know that she is talking about um, the same thing I'm talking about? How do I know synchronicity, not causality? because I didn't tell her what I was watching last night that was exactly the same thing as of the dream. I would have had to told her what I was watching last night and waited for her to have a dream about it. She did not. She brought a dream and I saw something last night that reflected the dream. That's why it's synchronicity. So I kept thinking to myself, Eric, I said, to myself, I said, well, you know, can I use this as an example of synchronicity tonight? Can I really? And then my second patient came and he said, and this is his dream. I'm starting to work at a new job in a small aerospace company like SpaceX. Again, I was like, wait a second, what's going on? What's what? Why are we talking about space? I know I was talking about space, but how do you just like, I don't talk to my clients about space. Like I don't, I don't say I'm watching ancient aliens and this is what they did on ancient aliens. I don't mention it, you know? So he says, or blue origin. I find the team I am working with and introduce myself. The leader of a group, a pudgy middle-aged white guy, takes a little notice as he's leading the others in intense discussion. They are coming up with a theme song for an upcoming launch that leaders see an opportunity for self-promotion. So I've been thinking about a song for Jamp. <laughs> Just to give everybody an idea, I've I want to use one of Irma Thomas's songs. Somebody help me. Um, somebody cares. But I want to use that song for young and advanced motor processing. And so I get this. They come and it's the leader as an opportunity for he wants to make a big splash and take all the credit. Now it's coming after me. So it's just fun to listen to why the archetype is so irritated. I wonder to myself what this has to do with structural dynamics. And find this guy approaching off-putting. He sends me away and I find my way to the musician who has been charged with playing the song. 
And he says, they come up with this. I introduce myself. We start to chat. Um, he's a 30-something African-American male, plans to play the song on his guitar. He asked if I would like to hear it and what they would come up with so far. And I would tell him I, I do. He plays the song and is very careful not to make any judgments about it. I tell him that I'm no expert, but this sounds to me, this sounds awful to me. I love this part. He looks relieved and says he agrees. It's a terrible song. I go back to my sign group and the leader is still talking about the song. I know he's thinking about what it could do for his career. I try to suggest that we might look at the greater good of the whole company, but he has no interest. I mean, <laughs> so when I think of this song and I think of, I, I think of Irma Thomas and I wish somebody would care. Um, I think what a brilliant song, how it connects us to what we want to do and how we want Young Advanced Motor Processing to help and to convey a message you think you would need a song. But the archetype is telling me I'm a fool, I'm self-involved, this is self-promotion, um, it's opportunistic. Um, what else does it say? Uh, this sounds awful. <laughs> so when we talk about synchronicity, this is what we mean in synchronicity. Of course, I did not talk to my client about this because it would have been about me. I didn't want to make it about me. This is about the client. Yet at the same time, because these patterns are connected and this is synchronistic with what I believe that there needs to be a sound because I believe that songs um, convey the message of connection of how we're connected and caring about each other. It's a, uh, it's a soul message. Songs are soul messages. Uh, they transmit across time um, messages to all of us. And that's why we listen to them over and over again. <clears throat> But I thought this was really cute, you know, with all respect to the archetypes, I thought it was still cute. Um, they've tried to insult me in different ways, but I'm, I'm enjoying it at this point. I keep seeing it over and over again. It's a pattern. Yes. It's a synchronistic pattern. And remember, we talked about this uh, earlier on, and I read from um, other dreams um, that my clients had uh, in relation to Jam, in relation to me, in relation to what I was doing. This is some, it's somewhat obscured and, but it's exactly what I've been talking about. Dr. Lahab, can I, yeah. can I throw out yeah. two really quick personal examples that helped yeah. me to to, to understand these concepts a little better. Yeah. And they're real simple. Uh, when we talked about, you mentioned earlier that these energies coordinate, coordination, have having coordination is a hard concept for people to understand. 
Mm. It was hard for me to understand too. Mm. And so I, so I thought about, I put it in mathematic terms, mm. coordination. What is coordination? Well, you have an X, everybody went to high school knows this. Mm. You have an X coordinate and a Y coordinate. Mm. Okay. Mm. They're going in two different directions. Supposedly. All these two completely different directions, top and bottom. And yet at some point in time, they always have a point of contact. Yes. And so that's coordination. Those things are coordinated. Yes. Even though most of the time they live apart, at times they will come together. The other thing that really helped me, which I do not understand this at all because I don't have the mind of a physicist. It's my, it's my greatest desire is to have a mind of an astrophysicist. Mm. But when they talk about quantum entanglement and mm. they talk about subatomic particles that are far apart. Now, subatomic particles on the head of a pen can be, if you blow that up to the size of a human being, they can be many, many, many miles apart. And you, some of those subatomic particles can be turned to different angles. And the one over here that is completely out of its energy, direct energy, what we would normally think of like gravitational energy or electrical energy, completely way out of, way out of, uh, way out of the, the uh, realm of effect. And it turns too. And then they change the spin. And then this one changes its spin. The point being that if on a subatomic quantum level, this is what's going on in our bodies, why can't I understand that that may just translate to energy that I put out and that I enter in and, and, it's, and swim in during life, as well as but something that, from the me. energy that we're produced from. So, so if, you, if you look at it from top to bottom, that energy that we're we're admitting that energy you're talking about as us living in that energy that's connecting us but if you look from top to bottom that energy is just a minuscule thing we're connected to all these other ways yeah to all this other energy that's connected to us it's a moment <clears throat> in time and every time i see these dreams i have to laugh I laugh because the insults, but I also laugh because Jung said that the mind, that the is mythopoetic. It tells a story and it also rhymes. So it's actually rhyming with my disastrous presentation. And it says it here. It says, you know, it's like wheel pops over the curve, then the outside front wheel, then the vehicle comes craning over the edge and drops about 20 feet on. It's just like, you're a complete disaster. I'm, I'm showing you, I'm telling you, you're a complete disaster. Why can't you? But this is, this is why we, this is why we have to think of ourselves as uh, more important than less important. More important meanings that we're more connected in the world. Yes. Things that we have absolutely no idea what they are. 
then less important that we don't mean anything. Of course we mean something. And I think people miss that. I think people like take it really hard upon themselves that I'm meaningless, that I, I don't have any, I don't have any point of existence. And the point of existence is the connection. It is more important that we are all connected. And if we understand the connections that make us who and what we are and how these patterns keep pulling us together, then we won't see ourselves so separated, so isolated, so alone, you know, so minuscule, so unwanted, so uncared for. That we all belong in these matrices and these matrices give us, you know, a mirror and it throws it and it likes to joke around. I think, I think it's quite creative and I think it's quite funny. I, I, I do, I, I respect the insults. I, I think they make me work harder as to, am I a Suzuki? Do I need to really rev this up and make this? So it inspired me today to write because I was like, really? No, I don't think so. <laughs> but these, these are, these are uh, motivating energetic patterns, Eric. Well, it's real important, Dr. Lahab, for, for all of us to understand that we are important just from, if for no other reason, that we are a part of the whole Ooh. and that we have effect on other parts within the whole. Absolutely, 1,000%. And, and uh, yes, the, the whole can continue on without us, but that doesn't, that doesn't reduce our importance. It's like the small pebble that you skim over the pond. It creates all these circles as it goes by. It's a small petal. It's a small pebble that you're skimming off the pond. But once that pebble hits the pond, it starts to show more and more and more and more. Some of it suddenly is not a small pebble. It's not the small pebble. Right. You know, and it doesn't have any meaning. I hate to throw some Star Trek on you here, but Spock, Spock understood this. Okay. When he, when he was in that ionized room by himself dying, yeah. and Kirk was wanting to save him, he said, No, the many, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Ooh. And and then he put his hand on the glass, and Kirk put Ooh. his hand on yeah. the glass. He said, you have been and always will be my friend. Yeah. Spock knew that it wasn't, it didn't end there, that there was, there were energies that were going to continue in memories and in thoughts and in, in a variety of ways of his importance. And his recreation occurred on the planet that was created from a, a huge explosion they created this planet that started to grow like instantly and give life and because he he was buried on that planet he started to live again mm -hmm. yeah um so uh with respect to the archetypes i know i 
I, I think I, I told you about this, Eric. We were, I was talking to Alan and me and him were talking about mythology and archetypes and we were laughing. We were having a joke and we were laughing. And he said, you know, this is not funny. <laughs> I said, yeah, you're right. We should not fuck with these forces. <laughs> but he, in, in a way he's right. You know, these forces, you have to respect them. They are transcendent. They are beyond time. And the things that you think that they cannot reach, they actually have quite a reach into um, the physical world. Um, in synchronicity- Was that Alan, Alan Guggenbuehl you were talking yes, about? Yes, yes. I just, I just found this book today and I didn't even know I had it. It's by him. Yes, uh, that's when he was here. And it's in German. I don't know why I have it. I, can't I, 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 I gifted you that. You may, maybe you did. I, I brought that back with oh, me. Yes, you did. Yeah. This was, night, this was old, night, uh, 2002. Yes, yes. That's, uh, I think he was, uh, he was he here. He signed it for me. Yeah, he was here. That was him. He was here. He um, he was part of our group at Mercy Home. He sat in on one of our groups, if you remember. Oh, I do remember. Yeah, he sat in on one of our uh, daily groups. So uh, in synchronicity and archetypal theory. Um, so this is in 1954. And uh, two years after the appearance of Singularity essay, Young published a revised version of his definite theoretical paper on the nature of the psyche. So he says, it is at one, the same time, absolute subjectivity and universal truth for in principle, it can be shown to be present everywhere which certainly cannot be said of conscious contents of personalistic nature, the elusiveness, the capriciousness, the haziness, the uniqueness that lay mind away associates with the idea of the psyche applies only to consciousness, not to the absolute unconscious. Unlike consciousness, the unconscious is regularly predictable and collective the qualitative, qualitatively rather than quantitatively definable units with which the unconscious works, namely the archetypes, therefore have a nature that cannot with certainty be disguised as psychic. I think that's quite beautiful. That's, um, that's a quote that's uh, Stein quotes Young on page 208. It's the bottom paragraph. Um, he says, and I'll read this. He says, it's a one and the same time absolute subjectivity universal truth that the unconscious holds everything. Holds us. Holds the world, the cosmological library of the cosmos.
He says in earlier chapters, I noted that the archetypes, this is Stein, are to be considered psychoid rather than purely psychic. In this passage, Jung states this explicitly. Although I have been led by purely psychological considerations to doubt, this is quote, although I've been led by purely psychological considerations to doubt the exclusively psychic nature of the archetypes, psychology sees itself obliged to revise its only psychic assumption in the light of physical findings too. The relative or partial identity of psyche and physical continuum is of the greatest importance theoretically because it brings with it a tremendous simplification by bridging over the seeming inconsumability between the physical world and the psychic, not of course in any concrete way, but from the physical side by means of mathematical equations and from the psychological side by means of empirically derived postulate archetypes whose content, if any, cannot be represented in the mind. In other words, Jung sees larger areas of identity between the deepest pattern of the psyche, archetypal images, and the processes and patterns evident in the physical world studied by physicists. So ironically enough, it turns out that participation mystique of first stage primitive psychology is not so far from reality after all. The psyche defined by Jung as whatever contents or perceptions are capable in principle of becoming conscious and being affected by the will includes ego consciousness, complexes, archetypal images, and representations of instincts. But archetypes and archetypal images, I'm sorry, but archetype and instincts per se are no longer psychic. They lie on the continuum with the physical world, which at its depth as explored by modern physics is a mysterious spiritual as the psyche, both dissolved into pure energy. The point is important because it suggests a way to conceive of how the psyche is related to soma and to the physical world. So for Jung, the archetypes live on the border between the psychoid and the psychic plane. The psychoid, for those who have been listening to us, <clears throat> We'll explain just a little bit, but the psychoid is the psychic memory of the body. It's what the matter has gone through, the participation of the matter in the world. So if you have a body, you have a psychoid realm that encompasses the body. It holds memories, it holds traumas, it holds... Uh, uh, injuries, it holds fantasies, it holds um, deep story that is connected to body. It's kind of our physical body spirit. In yes. A way, isn't it? yes, absolutely. 100%. It is the, the physical body has its own psychic spirit. Yes. That is connected to, that's not separate from, that's connected by the archetypes to the psychic realm. So the archetypes exist in two realms, actually. I think uh, Stein kind of walks the line and says they're here, but not here. But I will, I will throw this out. I think they exist in both realms. I think they both exist in the psychic and they, 
the Stein says they connect both, but I think they exist in both. That they can exist in the psychoid range and they can exist, but I think what exists in the psychoid range is the complexes, not the archetypes. I think the archetypes um, project pressure on the psychoid realm. That's a good way of saying it, project pressure. And then you have the instincts that arise because of that pressure. Yeah. And then you have the psychic realm where the self presides as the architect um, of order. And I want to be specific about what Jung says. He says the self is the psyche, the, the self is the architect of order. It is not the archetype. It is the archetype of order. It keeps everything in line and helps everything integrate. And therefore, because it's the archetype of order, it is looked on as an archetypal God or projected upon others as an archetypal God. It kind of allows the archetypes in its work in in its world, but it it puts at least it keeps some level of of indirect control over them. Would that be appropriate to say? Yes. I, I'm, I'm not sure how much control it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. I, I but we do know that it has it has a. So I think we talked about this earlier. There is a hierarchy of order within the psyche. The psyche is ordered and there is a hierarchy. And when there is chaos, we know this because uh, we say somebody's psychotic because there is psychic chaos. So in the world, they present as disorder because the order in the psychic realm is out of order. So when it's out of order in the psychic realm in the material plane, it looks psychotic or disordered. And that's what we call it. We even diagnose it. We say, what disorder did this person suffer from? What personality disorder? What access one disorder? What we're talking about is that the psych, the, the self has um, chaos. You know, it may, it may just simply be nothing less than a boundary. It's kind of like when I used to drive by Wrigley Field or White Sox Park, all this, when a game was going on, all this chaos and noise and stuff was going on inside the park but it didn't spill out of the park the park contained it all but the energy emanated from the park like you yeah. said earlier it emanated in waves so if things were going well you were feeling good because you have a hundred thousand people cheering for it so you have 100,000 people that are nece not necessarily drunk, but 
in those days, uh, <laughs> White Sox Park and Wrigley Field, they were all drunk. But they, the, the energy was good. The energy was positive because they're winning, they're happy, they're excited, they're singing, they're dancing. Um, but if negative energy was emitting from that area, you would drive by and feel blasé. You would feel, you know, you're meeting a friend for a drink and you're like, how have you been? Nah, not really. But that was not how you felt until you drove by. Yeah. But you don't know this. This is this is how the psychic energy. The energy was dampened in that in that case. So this is where it affects the psychoid. This is where the energy affects the psychoid, and this is the the way the archetypes uh, influence um, the instincts. So he says, Signoricity is defined as a meaningful coincidence between psychic and physical events. A dream of a plane falling out of the sky is mirrored the next morning into a radio report. No known causal connections exist between the dream and the plane crash. Young posits that such coincidence rests on organizers that generate psychic images on one side and physical events on the other. The two occur at approximately the same time. The link between them is not causal. Anticipating his critics, Young writes, Young, skepticism would be leveled only at incorrect theories and not at facts which exist in their own right. No unbiased observer can deny them. Resistance to the recognition of such facts rests principally on the repugnance people feel for an allegedly supernatural faculty tacked on the psyche like clairvoyance. The very diverse and confusing aspects of these phenomenons are so far as I can see at present completely ex explicable on the assumption of a physical relative space-time continuum. So space-time continuum is the way you receive the signal. Our connection to other people, whether known or unknown, is always present. Other people affect us. I was listening to one of my favorite podcasters, talking about, um, he usually talks about the team that I support, Manchester United. But anyway, he was talking about how he was suffering from uh, mental health issues in this talk. He wasn't talking about the team. And I was moved to tears by him. This is what Jung is talking about. This is what happens. The, the cyclical relative space-time continuum affects us in different ways. We are moved to tears 
by people we've never met, we've listened to, but we've never met, we don't have a real relationship with, we listen to once a week or after a game usually, he talks for like 10, 12 minutes. I usually enjoy his talks. Um, I felt very moved. I felt um, it, it, it moved me to, Eric, what can I say? It, it made an impression. The pattern of that pain made an impression. And it felt much more connected than disconnected. And I think the more that we individuate, the more we use jab, the more we heal, the more we feel connected to those who seem to be very far away from us, not meaning anything. Well, you were having, in my opinion, you were having the experience of an empath. I, I yeah, maybe. Empathic. Yeah, it, it, it felt, it felt very deep for me. It felt, um, I actually wrote him an email um, telling him about Jamp and how we'd be happy to help and um, him feeling better about his life and trauma treatment. Um, but yeah, these are connected through the patterns we are connected through these patterns. We are uh, much closer to each other than we think we are. Even though we live hundreds of miles away from each other or across continents or even in time. Even if, you know, when we read about young, I mean, Stein, we know, uh, Dr. Murray Stein, uh, but when we read about Jung, when Stein writes about Jung, it's like he's writing about somebody we know. So when we're talking about Jung, it's not like we were, you know, his peers and we were hanging out and arguing with him. But we talk about him like we are because of the space-time continuum. He says... Synchronicity is a phenomenon that appears most, this is on page 211, Stein, is operating at less conscious level as in dreaming or musing. A state of reverie is ideal. As soon as one becomes aware and focuses on the synchronistic event, time and space categories resume their sway. Young concluded that the subject of the Rhine experiments must have dimmed their consciousness as they become more interested and excited by the project. Had they tried using their rational egos to figure out the probabilities, their ESP results would have dropped for soon as cognitive functioning takes over and the doors close to synchronistic phenomena. Young points out too that synchronicity seems to depend greatly on the presence of affectivity that it is sensitivity to the emotional stimuli. Like an empath. Yes. Yeah, That's interestingly right. enough, I studied uh, a different way of version of this. Uh, Edmund Husserl Ooh. was 
a little bit older than, uh, well, probably about 20 years older than Young. But, Young, uh, Young probably studied him. Interestingly, and well, and, and vice versa. Interestingly mm -hmm. enough, Young, some people say Young even prefigured Husserl's idea of phenomenology because of some of the readings that apparently no one knows for sure that Husserl did. But anyway, make a long story short, Husserl wanted to take this concept that you, we've been talking about, and he wanted to take it and put it in a kind of like a therapeutic approach style. So he created something called phenomenological reduction, which was basically kind of an intense form of meditation where you work hard at emptying yourself of all thoughts, preconceived notions, ideas, feelings, and get in that kind of semi-altered state of consciousness. And then what happens to you, I only had it happen to me a few times, but when, it, when, it, when I was successful at it, but what happens is it, it, it's, it's like you are not really out of your body, but it's like your body is in the back and all you are is feeling what is emanating from the person that you're with. And it's, it's just pure energy that, that you're feeling. And most of it is effective. Most of it is emotional energy. Ooh. It's the closest I've ever been with the exception of, I fasted for 17 days one time. Ooh. And it's the, other than that last week of that fast, it's the only two times in my life where I felt that empty of myself and, and full of empathy toward Ooh. when I say empathy, I don't mean feeling sympathy. No, I, I, I mean, feeling beyond what I would have felt. And I'm feeling their actual feelings about their own pain in a way that that's beyond what I would have felt. And, yeah. and so I, I, I loved reading that, that passage that you just read because he's talking about the same thing. Yeah. And what I appreciate about Jamp in, in my relatively brief experience with Jamp is that Jamp makes this happen. Uh, it's doing the work that many, 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 many hours and weeks and months of phenomenological reduction did. Mm. It, it, it awakens the Kundalini, whatever term you want to use. No, well, I think that's an important term because it does awaken the Kundalini. It awakens, it awakens the 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 senses of the self to um, the existence of the self. And unlike Carlos Castaneda, I didn't have to take peyote to reach that separate reality. No. <laughs> um, no, it's... but we don't mind Carlos Castaneda doing his thing. Oh, I don't mind it either. I, no, I, we should. I I'm, I'm thinking we should like do a podcast on Carlos. I read all his books. Yeah, we should do a we should do a, a, a podcast on him. Anyway, um, we. So this is a very heavy laden chapter, and yeah, there's is. a lot of other things that um, I had ideas about talking about. So I'm gonna try to uh, put them together. Jung introduced the idea of the archetype property of trans 
aggressivity. Although associated with causal process or carried by them, they, the archetypes, continually go beyond their frame of reference, an infringement to which I would give the name transgressivity, because the archetypes are not found exclusively in the psychic sphere, but can occur just as much in circumstances that are not psychic. Equivalence of an outer physical process with the psychic one. The archetype transgresses both the boundaries of psyche and of causality. Although it is carried by both, Jung intends transgressivity to mean that the patterns which occur in the psyche are related to patterns and events that lie outside of the psyche. The feature common to both is the archetype. In case of the atomic bomb, the archetype of the self is revealed in history, inside and outside of the psyche, by the event of its explosion. In and through world historical context in which it appeared, and by millions, my guess, although there has been some research on this, of dreams that have featured the bomb. The idea of this archetype transcript transgressivity cuts into two directions. First, as I have been discussing, it affirms that there's underlying objective meaning in the coincidence that fall together in the psychic world and strike us as intuitively meaningful. On the other hand, it creates the possibility that there is meaning where we do not intuitively see it when, for instance, accidents take place that strike us as merely due to pure chance. In this case, in both cases, this type of meaning goes beyond transgresses. The chain of linear causality is our birth into particular family only due to chance and causality. Or could there be meaning here as well? Or suppose that the psyche is organized, structured, not only causally, as is usually thought of in developmental psychology, but also synchronistically. This would mean that personality development takes place by moments of meaningful coincidence called synchronicity, as by a preordained epigenic sequence of stages. It would also imply that the instinct groups and the archetypes become wedded and activated both causally and synchronistically, meaningfully. An instinct like sexuality, for example, might become activated not only because of the causal change of sequential events, genetic factors, psychological fixations, or early childhood experiences, but also because an archetypal field is consolidated at a particular moment and a chance encounter with a person turns into a lifelong relationship. In this moment, something of psychoid world becomes visible and conscious. The Ziggy, the soulmate pair, the consolidated image of the archetype does not create the event, but the correspondence between the inner psychological preparedness, which may be totally unconscious at the time and the other appearance of a person simply and unpredictably is synchronistic. So with that, because there's a lot more, but with that, I'm going to stop here.
and say what Dr. Stein was um, completing his words. We are connected not just by causality. We are connected synchronously because we are connected through patterns. The more we're able to decipher these patterns, I think we talked about last week, patterns is in everything. Pattern recognition is the essence of every endeavor that we take from AI to every other one. Because basically what we're doing is we're repeating the pattern. We are creating the pattern that's already there. We couldn't make patterns and, and categories. Our brain would have to be five times larger than it is. But we are mimicking patterns and categories. I don't think we are creating anything that the cosmos has not created. I think that the patterns and categories are already created and we are seeing them. Yeah. And then we start to run around the field saying touchdown, touchdown. I scored a touchdown because you saw the pattern. The NFL is a beautiful place for that. The run that creates the touchdown. <clears throat> we had a, um, what did they call him? He returned punts uh, in Chicago. He played with the Chicago oh, Bears. Do you remember so, him? Oh, so good. Do you remember, what was his name? I can't remember his name. But anyway, next week we will say his name because out of respect for him. Devin Hester. Devin Hester. Devin Hester saw the pattern before it happened. Yes, he did. So if you would like to understand what we're talking about, turn on Devin Hester on YouTube and watch his returns for the Chicago Bears. He would watch how the pattern was going to be, and he would score a touchdown. He would score a touchdown because he saw the pattern. He would run to an opening that wasn't there yet. Because he saw the pattern. Yes, but it wasn't there yet. Yes, because he saw the pattern. Because the pattern was, he had seen it before it showed itself. Mm -hmm. Like I said, you see the pattern from the bottom. I see it from the top. We're saying the same thing. Yes. Um, so if you want to think about patterns, watch Devin Hester, very fascinating. Michael Jordan, amazing patterns. He would watch the patterns. He would know, he would know who's going left. He would know who's going right. He would know who's in front of him and he would know where to take a shot from. He would see it before they would. So of course he would beat them. Of course he would beat the clock because he saw the pattern. This is how patterns, when we talk about them, because we talk about them in an ethereal way, you're thinking, oh, what are these guys talking about? Are they really talking about things that exist and like affect me today? Of course. It's the same thing as like when you um, devise a way to get to work and you say, I'm gonna take um, 
Ninth Avenue. I'm going to drive down Ninth Avenue and then take the highway and then get off the highway and take 15th Street and 15th Street will take me. Okay, why is that? That's a pattern. That's a pattern that gets me to work faster. Right? And I, I figured out a pattern. And so I use the same pattern, right? Like, why are you taking this route? Oh, this is much faster. I figured out a pattern. It's pattern recognition, right? So um, Devin Hester was gifted in that he saw pattern recognition. Plus, he was super fast. Yes. But he saw patterns. He would guess how they would go before they would go. With that, I am Dr. Lahab Al Samurai. This is the IFC's Individuation Podcast. With me is Dr. Eric Tomlinson, who's been gracious enough to walk with me through these nine very dense chapters of Dr. Murray Stein's Young Map of the Soul, which we express great gratitude towards Dr. Stein and his work and being able to um, use his work to talk more about Carl Jung and um, his vision of the world and archetypes, especially since in Jungian advanced motor processing, um, we are talking about archetypal patterns. And I'd like to thank him for the years of, anal of analysis that <clears throat> under him. And that's, um, that's a personal message. We'd like to send him to thank him for his contribution to our well-being. With that, um, until next week, uh, next week, uh, we are very excited because next week we are going to go into Dr. Marie Louise von Franz's archetypal symbols in fairy tales. Um, she is amazing and we uh, are very excited to um, see if we can figure out her patterns and how she likes to talk about patterns um, and we can give it to you and talk to you. Uh, Dr. Tomlinson, what would you like to say to our listeners? Uh, my my Marie, Fon, Marie von Franz Brook just came during this podcast. That's why I was gone for about 15, 20 seconds. Someone was banging on the door and ringing Sync, the doorbell. Synchronicity. And it was that book. Synchronicity. It was Amazon saying, Center. it was, I think von Franz was saying it's time to move on from old man. I, I, <laughs> I guess so, because I got it today. <laughs> We would like to thank our listeners across the world uh, for listening to us and uh, for taking the time. Uh, I am Dr. Lahab El Samurai. This is Dr. Eric Tomlinson, and this is the IFC's Individuation Podcast. We bid you adieu until next week. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Individuation Podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Eric and Dr. El Samurai. We would also like to thank Eric for taking the time to join us. We hope you enjoyed this chapter from Jung's Map of the Soul. Tune in again next time to the Individuation Podcast for another episode soon.
we at the Institute of Conflict greatly appreciate all of you listeners. Please share the podcast with your friends and spread the word. If you would like to help expand our community, like us on Facebook and Instagram and give us a five-star review on iTunes. I'm Sonia Mahmood and you've just listened to the Institute of Conflict Individuation Podcast. We'll be back soon.